15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on yet another episode of the Space Nuts podcast. We thought you'd be fed up by now, but no, you keep asking for more, so we keep delivering. Episode 254, good grief. I can't believe we've talked for near 254 hours about uh, all this stuff, but uh, people find it fascinating. I hope you do too, and thank you for joining us. My name's Andrew Dunkley, by the way, your host, and joining me again is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Uh, hi, Andrew. How, how are you doing? You're looking hale and hearty, if I may say so. <clears throat> oh, thank you, sir. You're looking wonderful yourself. <laughs> oh, jolly good. <laughs> I've, I've had a, um, a pretty good week. I, I suppose I'm I'm getting my um, first COVID vaccine injection on Monday. Oh, so, good. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that could be interesting. Oh, yes. you'll enjoy it. It's, uh, it's, it's a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> I had mine four, yeah, four that, weeks uh, ago, five weeks ago. I'm I'm thinking that I need to do it and then talk about it on the radio because of the negative publicity surrounding yeah, uh, some of the effects that have Get been in there. Yeah. Um, highlighted around the world. And and yet you talk to the doctors and the nurses and they'll they'll tell you, look, that yeah, these things are happening in very very small quantities, and the odds of anything going pear shaped are one in a million. So in our, in our I'm, age, I'm thinking I need to yeah. do this and. Yeah, yeah, and um, I'm thinking I need to um, get mine and, and get on the radio and say, okay, I did it, and this is, you know, and this yeah. is the story. But yeah. uh, we will um, – that'll be next week. If I'm not here next week, <laughs> you'll know that my yeah. arm's too sore to lift up. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, that's what it – You'll be all right. You'll I'm be sure all it'll right. be fine. Yeah. I didn't have I'm any sure. any after effects at all with mine. I had, In fact, I had more – Yeah, well – uh, more with the flu jab that I had, which gave me very, very slight yeah. flu symptoms. You, I know you you come down really badly with the flu when you have a flu jab, but um, AstraZeneca did I, nothing. I have in the past. Great. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I had a flu injection two and a half weeks ago and no side effects at all. Oh, just, a, just a bit of a sore arm for about a day, yep. but nothing, nothing yeah. at all. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, after getting the flu full on in 2018, I am religious about getting my flu vaccine now uh, because I don't want to ever go through that again. It was horrible. Okie dokie. Uh, it's uh, time to um, look at what we're going to be talking about this week. We're going to be talking about COVID-19, the AstraZeneca <laughs> injection. Yeah. Hang on, we've yeah. already done that. Uh, yeah. uh, we're <laughs> going to talk about uh, heavy metals in the vapour of comets. Uh, this is a new discovery um, I'm thinking um, Metallica was in there, yep. uh, banging Luke, away, yep, um, yep. and maybe a couple of other heavy metal bands of the era. Um, probably um, um, Bill Haley and his Comets as well from the 1950s. They'd be in there. They're not heavy metal, but they're... Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to talk about where we live because I'm, I'm sorry to break this to you, but the journalist in me must report the facts. We live in a really ordinary place. I mean, in the scheme of things, it is as boring as bat poo, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, maybe a good thing. We'll find out. Uh, we've got questions as well from Tim in Lismore who wants to know about dipping his toe into a black hole. Not a good idea, Tim. Uh, also, the stability of our solar system. Why is it so? Because it's ordinary. It's <laughs> That's why. And uh, Paul from T Toowoomba is asking questions about magnet magnetism and tractor beams. All that to come on this episode of Space Nuts, which we're planning to knock over in probably three or four minutes. Now, Fred, let's start with heavy metals in comet vapour. This has uh, just been discovered, and I'm guessing there's a, a paper or at least some form of study that's uh, come up with this uh, interesting di discovery, this interesting find. Indeed, yeah. Um, th there is there is a paper and um, lots of press about it as well because it's a really interesting result. And I should tell you that um, these studies uh, use the telescopes of the European Southern Observatory down there in Chile, uh, which um, are pretty well the, the best equipped uh, large telescopes in the Southern Hemisphere. There are 
few other ones down there which are pretty damn good as well. But uh, the the four telescopes yeah. of the very large telescope, they're they're cracking good. And so they were used to make these observations. And what's interesting about this is uh, by, by heavy metals. Actually, we should we should perhaps just define that for a minute, Andrew, because. Astronomers Good idea. have got a have got a very funny view of what constitutes a metal, um, and a metal in astronomy is anything other than hydrogen and helium. So oxygen's a metal, calcium's a metal. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> ah. um, it's 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 always been like that. I guess probably since the start of astronomical spectroscopy, the idea of breaking up the light from stars and um, finding out what signatures of elements you can get in there. But, yeah, the, the yep. metals are anything uh, heavier than hydrogen or helium. Uh, so when you talk about heavy metals, you're really talking about what you and I would call metals in normal life, mm. and in particular iron and nickel. And iron is the commonest uh, metal in the, uh, in the in the universe, uh, in fact, one of the commonest elements, and it's because it's a, it's a byproduct of... Uh, of the n- nuclear processes that go on inside stars when they're in their normal adult life. So iron is being created uh, towards the end of the life of the star, actually. Anyway, the, 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 the bottom line is um, uh, iron is common, nickel is common. Now, there, there is an interesting little factoid about this, though, and that is that um, we find, for example, in the core of the Earth, it's an iron-nickel core, and the iron usually outweighs mm. the nickel when you find it in, in nature, like metallic asteroids or, or the core of a planet. It's usually 10 times more iron than nickel, uh, which is understandable because iron's more readily produced inside stars. But in this story, uh, we find that in these comets, uh, you've, you've got more or less equal proportions, and that is unexpected. Uh, that there are equal proportions of iron and nickel in the comets. Now, we've known uh, for a long time that comets must have this sort of stuff in their material. Remember, comets are icy bodies with lots of dust embedded in the ice, and that dust includes heavy metals. And the the temperatures of these things are uh, typically colder than minus 100 degrees Celsius, so they're very, very cold. And the the metals normally um, remain very much as grains of dust, basically, not not anything that's vapour. But that's the surprise with these observations, um, and it comes from groups in Poland and Melbourne, I think, or the, sorry, Poland and Belgium, I think, are the um, main centres where the astronomers who've uh, worked on this uh, come from. Um, there are two studies, actually. Um, in, in fact, let me get it right. The first study is the, uh, the the solar system comets, and that's the Belgian study. The second one is our old friend Comet Borisov, uh, which has been looked at by a group from Poland. Um, Boris. <laughs> Boris, that's the one, yeah. The, the, and both of them have found this unexpected result that the metals turn up in the vapour of the comet, the stuff that's ejected from the comet when it gets near the sun, so that material vaporises. <clears throat> now, normally, these these elements, uh, they vaporise at very high temperatures, um, at 700 degrees Celsius or thereabouts, and we're talking here about minus 100. So what's going on? Um, yeah. And I should, I should just... Um, clarify there that when I say vaporize, I mean they sublimate. And sublimation is the process when a solid turns directly to a gas, which happens a lot in astronomy because it's what you what <clears throat> what elements do in a vacuum basically. Go straight from solid to, to gas. It's why on the surface of Mars, which is not a vacuum but not quite, um, ice doesn't turn into water, it just turns straight into water vapor. Uh, so uh, that's the process, sublimation. But the mystery, yeah, why why is it that at these ultra-low temperatures, uh, these metals are, are turning into vapours? And I think, as I understand the research, um, 
I can quote actually from the paper and you'll see the problem. Uh, the paper says, unbound nickel atoms seem to originate from the photodissociation of short-lived nickel a short-lived nickel containing molecule that sublimates at low temperatures or is otherwise released with major volatile compounds. Did you get all that, Andrew? Because that's the answer. Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what it means is... Um, what it means is that um, uh, the, the, the key word there is photodissociation. It's the radiation of the sun hitting these things, and it's a, it's a nickel-containing molecule, uh, and basically the, the radiation from the sun sh shoots out the, uh, the nickel atoms. And the same is probably true with the iron, I think. That's the, the story, that it's all about the sun's radiation acting directly on these atoms. If you'd asked me, Fred... If you'd asked me to guess before you told me the answer, I would have said, I'm, I'm going to imagine it's something to do with the sun hitting the comet. Yeah, you see, That's you what I would have said. You should be an astronomer, Andrew, because you, well, you've been no. mix, mixed <laughs> up with them for thinking. too long. <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely right. Um, I'll be a journalist. We don't have to <clears> think much. I think that's not quite true, but never mind. Sorry. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's... it's uh, I don't think you think at all, do you? <laughs> no, no, I never said that. <laughs> um, journalists, I think, have to think no. an awful lot. And um, a lot of them, these forensic journalists and, you know, investigative journalists, they're doing a fantastic job uncovering all kinds yeah, of miscreants. Yeah, it's tough work, and, though. Yeah, it would be. Don't make many brilliant. friends. No, I bet you don't. Mm. I bet you don't. It's a good job you've got me, isn't it, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, going back to that, you were right on the money. It's to do with the sun's radiation. To be honest, I would have guessed something similar, but I think I would have got it wrong. I think you got it right. I would have thought, oh, it's the subatomic particles in the solar wind that do this. And it doesn't look as though that's what it is. It's, the, it's actually the radiation, mm. uh, the light radiation from the sun. So there you go. Well, when I, when I say I think it's got something to do with the sun, that's a pretty broad answer. <laughs> yes. That could mean anything. <laughs> so that's a journalist at work. Yeah, that's right. Make it broad. <laughs> so um, I guess the, the, the nice twist in this is the Polish work that um, has looked at Comet Borisov, the, the first interstellar comet that we've ever observed, and found that it's got very, very similar properties uh, to solar system comets. Uh, and in fact, some work that we talked about about probably a month or so ago revealed that um, it, it seems to be like a solar system comet in every way, except it's never been near a star. So it's a pristine mm. um, sample of the of the raw material of stars and, and planets. Really interesting that it's uh, a, an icy remnant of the, of the gas and dust cloud that that, that that solar system, wherever it was, was formed in. Um, and this work, yeah. you know, kind of underlines that. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised the Polish uh, looked at Borisov. It's a very Eastern Bloc it name. Is, it's an Eastern Bloc name. <laughs> that's right. I wonder if that's why they chose to look at it. Well, it's just the opportunity um, presented itself, I imagine. And yeah. I don't suppose we'll ever – can we ever figure out exactly where it came from? Borisov, no. It's kind of a bit of a mystery, mm. really. You can see what direction it came from, but you don't know how long it's been travelling in that direction. Um, no. And like um, our old friend Oumuamua, which uh, came from the direction of the bright star Vega, uh, but when you know when Oumuamua was where Vega is, Vega wasn't there. It was somewhere else because Vega's moving as well. It's, it's the the yeah. comets are moving, and Vega is anyway. Uh, we so we'll probably never know where they came from. But it's uh, it's this. Go ahead. Same difficulty you face with time travel because you've got to figure out where something's going to be when you get there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Otherwise, you'll end up in the vacuum of space. Yeah, the odds are that that's exactly where you'd end up, feeling very uncomfortable probably with that old age-old question. Not in my new book. I got it all, I got oh, it all figured out. <laughs> okay, good. I actually had to rewrite a section because uh, I'd, I'd put all the data down about the time travel anomaly and then realised, yeah, you know, one of our listeners actually said, uh, you know, uh, how do you avoid ending up in the vacuum of space? And you were explaining the third element to uh, to time travel that would be required. And I went, oh, I better write that in. <laughs> Typed away, <laughs> got yeah. that, got that sorted out. <clears throat> yeah, Good but stuff. it is, uh, it, yeah, it is interesting that uh, these discoveries have been made on on two separate and very very different comets, and therefore stands to reason that this is not uncommon at all. 
that's that's right. That uh, you know, and this actually is a lovely segue to our next story in the next segment, Andrew. That um, we're pretty ordinary. <laughs> The solar yes, system is probably very, very typical in many ways, although it's different in some ways. We... Mm. <clears throat> All right. We will get on to that in a moment. But you are listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Let's take a short break now for a word from our sponsor, Namecheap.com. As their slogan says, search and buy domains from Namecheap at the lowest prices. This is the service the team at Bytes.com use to buy and manage our domains, and we're very happy with the service, support and value we receive. Can't recommend them highly enough. Buying the right domain name shouldn't be hard, and with Namecheap, we've found it to be anything but that. Find your dream domain and join over 2 million happy customers when you register with Namecheap. Trusted with over 10 million domains, you'll find you're in safe hands when it comes to turning your website idea into reality. They also have excellent tools to find the right name for you, like their handy search engine. Just type in your desired name, cross your fingers and press search. If what you were after is already taken, they'll offer up some great alternatives. And if you're looking for some inspiration, try the new website domain name finder beast mode and discover thousands of domain names fast. We've found their prices to be excellent, management tools intuitive and easy to use with excellent customer support should you need it. All in all, a great experience all round if you're looking to pick up a domain name or two or three or whatever it is you need. To check them out and help support us at the same time, just visit spacenutspodcast.com slash namecheap. That's spacenutspodcast.com slash namecheap. And namecheap is one word. You'll be glad you did and you'll find the URL details in our show notes and our website. Just visit the support page. Now, back to the show. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, our patron numbers are increasing, which is fantastic because we have been appealing for people who wish to voluntarily uh, become patrons of the Space, Nut po- uh, Space Nuts podcast. Uh, you can log on to our website, spacenutspodcast.com, uh, click on the supporter link and find out how you can be a supporter of Space Nuts, whether that's through a regular monthly payment through Patreon or Supercast or a one-off donation or maybe just spending a couple of dollars through the Space Nuts shop. Totally up to you, totally voluntary. You don't have to do any of that. You can just tune in and listen every week if you so desire. But the goal is for us to get um, patron numbers up to the point where it's self-sustaining and we uh, rely less on third parties. Uh, although we thank them for their support too. I mean, uh, people are coming to us uh, pretty regularly now wanting to support the Space Nuts podcast, and we so appreciate that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we've got uh, some wonderful co- collaborations in development at the moment, and we've got some new ideas we're working on, just a, a few things that uh, we think will value add to the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, these are, what, what was the, what's the term to use? In development. So we will um, we will tell you more about those as they get closer. But thank you to all our patrons, all the people who put their money into the podcast to keep us alive and kicking and to make sure the batteries don't run out on um, Fred's uh, machine that he has to turn on every night when he goes to bed. <laughs> uh, and uh, also, th- also thank you to our uh, Space Nuts YouTube followers who are numbering 1.72 thousand. Now, it's pretty impressive. Makes it sound like a lot, but uh, yeah, we've got one thousand seven hundred and twenty odd, and they are all odd because they're space nuts listeners or viewers on YouTube. Why you put up with our faces, I do not know, but we thank you for that. All right, Fred, uh, let's go from the extraordinary to the ordinary, and that is where we live in the universe. It's apparently not that flash. Uh, when it comes, you know, down to it, it's it's the ghetto of the universe. It's um, yeah, maybe it's not that bad. The, the, yeah, I mean, you're using the the ordinary, word ordinary in its Australian context, which means bloody awful, doesn't it? Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. That's, that's pretty yes, ordinary, mate. <laughs> I should clear that up. Yes, yeah. an Australian, when we refer to something as ordinary, it, it means it's absolute it's garbage. terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, the, um, but ordinary, but uh, so uh, perhaps um, 
regular or common or something like that is a better word for what I'm going to talk about, which comes from work done by colleagues uh, here at the University of Sydney, uh, here in Australia. And once again, they've used the fantastic facilities of the European Southern Observatory. It's a big plug for the for ESO today. Um, but the, yeah, this is a, a, a really nice story. And actually, it's got links with work that I've been involved with, with the, the RAVE survey and um, the Galar survey of uh, stars in our galaxy, uh, which... Um, we've talked about before so I won't talk about it again but it's it's a it's a topic uh, investigating a topic called galactic archaeology which is how ga- galaxies are put together and what you know what you can learn by looking at the constituents so two of my colleagues uh in the rave survey uh many years ago discovered that our galaxy has not just one but two disks uh, now when we think of galaxies, we usually imagine these lovely spiral structures and our galaxy would look like that if we could see it from the outside. Um, with mm. uh, that being one component and another being a much more rarefied halo spherically distributed around it of old stars and globular clusters. And that's they're the main constituents of galaxies, plus the, 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 um, the nucleus in the middle, the central core. But uh, these colleagues of mine are back in the probably the, the 90s, I think this was, they discovered that the disk is not just a single disk. It's got two components, uh, which they uh, named uh, the thin disk and the thick disk. <laughs> really good names, uh, because that's kind of what they're like. So the thin disk, and that's what you see when you're looking at the Milky Way, you're seeing the disk of our galaxy. It's about a thousand light years thick. Um, and it's the sort of central part the thin disk is sort of envelops that. It's about the same diameter, but thicker, several thousand light years thick mm. uh, and and much less dense. You know, it's a much more, there are far fewer stars in the thick disk. And this was the key thing. And this is really what distinguishes them. And it goes back to what we were just talking about, about um, metals, heavy metals, because the thin disk uh, where the sun is located, uh, and where which is the Milky Way that we see, that's rich in these uh, heavy heavy metals. That that the heavier constituents, the iron, the nickel, all of these things that uh, tell us that we're looking at a population of stars which are relatively young, and that's because they've been formed from a very rich soup of gas, uh, the interstellar gas, which has been enriched by previous generations of stars, if I can put it that way. So our uh, Milky Way stars are, they're they're kind of like the sun. They've got the composition of the sun, whereas the thick disk stars are much more ancient. uh, And that comes about because you can tell that they've got far fewer of these metals in their spectrum. Uh, so the spectrum's much more like primitive stars, stars that existed uh, hundreds of, uh, sorry, tens of, probably tens of, no, let me get it right, hundreds of millions, uh, tens of billions. <laughs> I've got, I, I keep mixing up my millions and my billions, Andrew. It, it's it's okay. um, several billion years ago, let me put it that way. Right. Um, so that that those that that's a time in the past when, the stars that were shining then had fewer of these heavy metals in their spectrum because they they hadn't been generated yet. They hadn't been made by that those generations of stars. So the thin disk and the thick disk are separate. Uh, they're distinct in the sense that the thick disk is an older structure. So when scientists tried to build models of how you would you might form uh, a thin disk and a thick disk with these properties. Uh, they ran into trouble. And the only way that you could get this structure uh, was if you had quite specific uh, events where you have a medium-sized galaxy in collision with ours, something like 9 billion years ago. And that is a process that's pretty rare. We know that galaxies eat up other smaller galaxies, but big galaxies colliding is a bit rarer. And so the suggestion Mm. was that our galaxy was unusual because it had had this rare collision uh, nine billion or so years ago. So, you know, that's... um, 
uh, was one of the reasons why we thought our galaxy wasn't pretty ordinary, that it was maybe quite unusual and maybe richer in these metals than other galaxies. And, of course, that plays into things like the origin of life and all, all of those issues, how much carbon you've got and things like that. So what these scientists have done is looked at other galaxies that are similar in appearance to the Milky Way, our own galaxy, using an instrument on the very large telescope down there in Chile, and made, measured the spectra. And they found at least one, which rejoices in the name uh, UGC 10738. Um, it's about a, th about a third of a billion light years away, so 320 million light years. And the nice thing about that galaxy is we're seeing it edge on. So you're seeing it, you know, from the side. And that means that you can actually look at the thin and thick disk stars separately. And that's what they did. And guess what? They found it's just like ours. Um, um, I'm quoting because yeah. there, there's a conversation article on this, which is well worth looking at. It's called Stellar Secrets of a Distant Galaxy Suggest Our Milky Way Isn't So Special After All. Uh, and what the authors say is we found, and they're talking about UGC uh, 10738, we found metal-rich, magnesium-poor stars concentrated in a thin disk along the gal galaxy's centre, with a distinct group of metal-poor, magnesium-rich stars above and below this in the thick-disk region. This distant galaxy is remarkably similar to our own, which in turn means there's probably nothing that remarkable, that's remarkable about the Milky Way after all. I just discovered a typo in the... Uh, oh, no, it's not a typo. There's nothing that remarkable about the Milky Way after all. I should read it properly. Um, sorry, chaps, if you're listening. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the issue I didn't mention of the magnesium-rich and magnesium-poor, that the... the, the um, thick disk, thin disk stars are magnesium poor. The thick disk stars unusually are magnesium rich, and this comes about because of um, the way these um, materials, these elements, are formed over generations of stars. It's the central pillar of the study of galactic archaeology: is looking at these different elements and seeing how they they spread throughout the spectrum of the uh, you know how how much okay. there is of them in the spectrum. So yeah, the conclusion so is we're maybe not that unusual. Yes. So rather than being boring and uninteresting, it's just we might be more common than not. That's right. Um, I, if I, I just go on and read a bit more of the conversation article, which is, um, you know, by the authors I've, I've mentioned from Sydney University. Our discovery has several, several implications. First, it suggests the disk features in the Milky Way might be the result of a standard formation path that all galaxies follow. And this is backed up by the identification of similar structures in non-Milky Way-like galaxies. And second, the fact that our galaxy is relatively normal is extremely exciting. It implies the Milky Way can act as a blueprint or template for galaxy formation. Um, means our home galaxy could hold the key to unlocking the cosmic history of the entire universe. And finally, and being a little speculative here, the Milky Way is the only galaxy that we know contains life. Um, new yes. research has suggested... I was going to mention that. Yeah, there you go. Um, it, it, mm. it Basically, it's saying that, you know, we're a home for life, maybe other galaxies are too. Well, it stands to reason, doesn't it? And certainly something you can't dismiss. I know people who absolutely and utterly believe in advanced civilizations beyond Earth, and maybe so. Whether or not we'll ever be able to communicate or contact them or find them remains to be seen. Some analysis of exoplanets may reveal the potential for civilised beings, but Indeed. at this point... We have evidence of one planet in the entire universe that harbours life, and that's... Uh, I don't know where it is. But anyway, it exists. Uh, now, the other question I have is with the ordinariness of our um, galaxy, yep. will that change in a few billion years when we merge with Andromeda? Because they'll have to rewrite this paper. <laughs> It will, four and a half billion years down the track. Yeah, because our galaxy, what will happen um, is, first of all, probably most of the stars will miss each other, so there won't be direct collisions. But um, both Andromeda and 
and the Milky Way are pretty rich in hydrogen, which is the raw material of stars. And when these, these, this interaction happens, there'll be a lot of gravitational disturbance, which will form mm. will cause a lot of stars to form. There'll be a rapid burst of star formation, sort of using up the hydrogen. A lot of young stars which pop off at the ends of their short lives are supernovae. And then the end up, the end product will be... Uh, uh, probably an elliptical galaxy. And elliptical galaxies, as their name implies, they look the shape of uh, rugby footballs. Um, and they have very little gas because it's all gone. It's all been used up by the stars in them. Uh, I don't and that, so those footballers have, have a fair bit of gas. <laughs> that's a different sort of gas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's right. It's, it's, um, um, it will ch change the character of our galaxy altogether. Um, you know, a lot of astronomers are already giving that end product a name, uh, which is Milcomida, uh, because it's the Milky Way and Andromeda. Oh. So Milcomida is the um, is the elliptical galaxy that will be en the end of it, and somebody else will write a paper on that in some other universe, I'm sure. They've got that reading trashy magazines about Bradgelina, I reckon. Uh, probably. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> I'll explain it one day. Yeah, you'll have to explain it. I'm you really great. don't need to know, though, Fred, honestly. <laughs> okay, ask okay. Marnie. I'll ask Marnie, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, I could get in trouble now. But, um, yes, uh, it, it is interesting, and the fact that uh, we are probably not ordinary is not ordinary, and that's a good thing <laughs> by the sound of it. <laughs> Two different uh, ordinaries could, there, that's right. Could open up the way to further analysis and maybe answering some of the questions of the universe. This is the Space Nuts, uh, Space Nuts podcast. Uh, I used to know a shop owner named Mr Nuss, but that's got nothing to do with us. Here uh, on the Space Nuts podcast, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, I did uh, mention patrons earlier on, and uh, I also mentioned our website, which I'm going to mention again, because why do something once when you can do it multiple times? But our website, if you haven't visited, spacenutspodcast.com, uh, is the place to go to catch up on Astronomy Daily, all the latest stories in the astronomical world. Uh, we have a feed there. Uh, we have the shop, which offers, um, you know, memorabilia we've got stickers we've got mugs we've got caps we've got shirts we've got all sorts of stuff um oh by the way i don't know if i can reach because i've got my headphone in but um i have got i'll be right back <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen he's no, got to put my headphone back in but Maybe. i have got um hard copies of my book they got delivered the other day that's very and, good and uh i have I, I got an instant request from one of our listeners uh, when I posted the video of me opening the box, which I did blind. I hadn't looked at them, so if they were all weird, I was going to embarrass myself. But uh, to Marie Claire, there's your book, autographed <laughs> as requested. Uh, very good. So that's going to be on its way to you, and thank you for um, you know putting uh, your your heart behind the podcast. We appreciate your support. She's been a great supporter of the podcast through her Instagram and Facebook pages, uh, and she wanted the first one. So there it is, ready to go. That will be in the mail in one or two years. Uh, just... <laughs> Letting you know. No, I'm just waiting a bit because she's 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 moving um, to her place in Florida, so she she doesn't want it to arrive before she gets there. Otherwise, you know, it could end up anywhere. Yeah, but um, I I will make sure that that gets to you in a timely manner. Uh, but yeah, our books are on uh, the Space Nuts shop, and uh, you can also uh, um, click on all the other links and find out all you need to know about astronomy and what makes us tick because we don't know maybe um maybe that's something that should be studied uh now fred let's uh get into some questions the first one comes from young tim i don't know how old tim is but he's in lismore in northern new south wales hi fred and andrew it's tim here from lismore uh far north coast of new south wales god's own country uh love the show been listening for since about episode 50 uh mind you Wife and kids think I need to get a life. Uh, a few questions, but I'll limit myself to two. So there's been a lot of talk recently about black holes and spaghettification. My question is, how thick is the event horizon? So I know you've mentioned that recently there's been a, 
event horizon that's like three times the size of the solar system but how thick is that event horizon line so with Hawking radiation it seems to indicate that it, it's razor thin but like yeah to me that just doesn't sound right so like if I dip my big toe across that event horizon line is it going to be spaghettified but the rest of me is going to be okay uh, so that's question one question two is how are the orbits of the planet so stable like surely planets and suns are expanding and moving or all zipping around the universe you know how we seem to be relatively stable or is it just that our time my timeline's so small like i would imagine everything's whizzing and you know crashing them bumping into one another but in you know everything seems to be moving along okay thanks very much keep up the good work bye Thank you, Tim. Um, the, the whizzing and crashing and bumping into each other, that's just standard traffic on the um, <laughs> Pacific Highway around Lismore, yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine. Uh, and I can answer yeah. his second question, the stability of the solar system. It's because we're ordinary. That's we're, we're that's ordinary, why. that's right. <clears throat> uh, but no, in all seriousness. Um, we'll start off with his first question. If he dipped his toe into the event horizon of a black hole, would it get spaghettified and the rest of him uh, would be okay? I suspect not. <laughs> You're on the money there, Andrew. It's a great question. Look, I've never been asked before how thick is the event horizon. I love it. It's great. Um, yes. But um, it's, it, it, it doesn't actually have a thickness. So the event horizon, in a sense, is an illusion. Um, it's just that um, it, it, co it corresponds to, uh, uh, well, it's a sphere, uh, but every point on that sphere is a certain distance from the black hole, um, and that's the radius of the event horizon. Uh, but what the event horizon is, is just that point in the vicinity or that distance from the black hole in its vicinity where light can't, can't escape. So it, mm. it's not really to do with the sp spaghettification. The p point being that if you approach a black hole long before you got near the event horizon, you'd be feeling this extreme gravitational field uh, and you'd be spaghettified already. Um, it's, uh, it's just that at the event horizon, all these peculiar phenomena involving photons, uh, which are particles of light, that's where they start happening most notably uh, the fact that uh, it, it, uh, light can't escape from the event horizon uh, and a particle of light on the event horizon is just whizzing round and round. It's in orbit. That's the, the key thing. So, um, yeah, you, it, dipping your foot in the event horizon, it's a, lo a lovely idea. Uh, that's, I'm sure that's good material for your next book, Andrew. Uh, but um, it, it doesn't work like Could that. The event, the event horizon is just this particular distance where light can't make it out. And so, uh, but you're already spaghettified. Um, so in a sense, it yeah. doesn't have a thickness. It is, it's a, basically, it's a boundary between one situation and another. And I suppose an analogy to that yeah. would be the surface of the sun, uh, which is where um, the, the light seems to come from and you can't see any further down. Um, be, but, but there's no, uh, you know, there's no big transition. It's just the pressure increasing as, the, uh, as you get nearer the centre of the sun. That wasn't a very good analogy, but and, it's the best um, I can think I, of. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. But I, I foresee a time, because I, I see where Tim's coming from, I foresee a time when interstellar travel's a thing, that they're going to have to put wrong-way-go-back signs up and around <laughs> yeah. all the black holes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because people will just want to go and have a look. Yeah. And you know how inquisitive we are. We'll get too close and... That's right. It'll be like... Uh, but the Italian restaurants to... will do well. <laughs> I'm not sure I perceive the link there, Andrew. I was thinking more, you know... Spaghettification? Oh, spaghetti. Worry, okay, there you go. <laughs> God, I'm so, I'm so slow today. It's been a, been a bad week. Because um, we're ordinary, Fred. That's, yeah, we're that's pretty what ordinary. it is. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I was thinking, though, uh, my thoughts went to Hawaii, where exactly what you've described happens. People go to look at the lava flows and just get too near, and all kinds of horrible things happen to them. Yep. Uh, and that would be the same with a black hole. I've but, actually done it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have. You've melted your shoes and things like that. Um, the... Um, mm. Italian restaurants need to be well enough away, but isn't it a great, you know, spaghettification restaurant would be a great uh, selling point for the the three hundred people it. in the world who I know what it. spaghettification is. Because um, 
<laughs> there is there is a restaurant at the end of the universe. There is. That's that. right. Uh, now, um, <laughs> moving on from that, uh, the stability of the solar system. Why is it so? Why isn't stuff crashing into each other? Well, it, I, I guess it still is, just not as dramatically and as regularly as it used to at the beginning. That's right. Exactly so. So in in its early history, 4.57 billion years ago, uh, the th- stuff was charging around all over the place. And it was exactly as uh, as Tim describes, everything was crashing and bumping into each other. Um, and that's what forms planets. But um, th- the planets, uh, as they build, they get more and more massive. And that sort of gives them... Um, a, a bit of a clout in terms of how you know their gravitational influence is enough that they can adopt stable orbits. Um, although it has to be said that we think that in the history of the solar system, particularly the giant planets, their orbits have probably migrated in and out a bit. And in fact, there's a possibility that at one time Neptune and Uranus were in a different order, that Uranus was actually the the, the furthest planet. Um, but that's a much more, you know, it's a much slower process. We're talking about things over hundreds of millions of years. Uh, and yeah. so it's, it's kind of crashing and bumping into each other in slow motion, if I can put it that way. Everything settles down. Um, the, the things stabilise... Uh, another example is the Trojan asteroids. This, these are these two groups of asteroids, and there's 9,000 of them all together, uh, which are in Jupiter's orbit, but clustered 60 degrees ahead of Jupiter and 60 degrees behind Jupiter. And what that's saying is, yeah, asteroids you'd think of would normally be in Jupiter's orbit would normally be colliding with Jupiter, but Jupiter's got such a huge gravitational influence that it forms these stable positions, the two Lagrange points, in front of and behind it, where asteroids cluster. So it's a kind of gravitational tidying up of the solar system, and um, that's basically what's happened with all the planets, resulting in a very stable situation, which is just as well if you're trying to evolve life on a planet, and in particular intelligent life. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I would imagine if things were unstable, we would never have... Came into have, being. We wouldn't have made uh, it. No, that's right. Possibly. No. All right. Thank you, Tim, for your questions. Very good. Let's move on to our next uh, set of questions uh, from Paul, also in Australia. He's uh, up in sunny Queensland. G'day, Professor Fred and Andrew. This is Paul from Toowoomba in Queensland, Australia. I've got a question about magnetism and tractor beams. Uh, I understand that some scientists down at the ANU in Canberra have managed to create a tractor beam using a laser. Uh, Is this because light is magnetic in nature, as you mentioned back in, I think it was episode 246, Professor Fred? Um, If so, cool. But can you explain how it works in terms that uh, my year five and year six students at Darling Heights State School could understand? That's actually just an excuse. I won't understand anything more advanced than that myself. Anyway, can't wait for both your books to come out. Uh, or at least one of them is going to be going on the shelf of my mini library at school. And congratulations also on over a million downloads and more than 250 episodes. It may have come as a surprise for you, but it sure as heck wasn't any surprise for us fans. Long may your work continue. Thank you to you, Professor Fred, you, Andrew, and you too, Hugh. Amazing work. Can't wait to hear more. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for the good wishes. Uh, lovely to hear from you. I'm, I'm guessing uh, I know which book's going to end up on the library shelf at the school. <laughs> and uh, sorry about that, Fred, but anyway. Yeah, that's um, a shame, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Tractor beams and magnetism. Mm. Um we, just, Paul, thank you very much for that. And just in case you didn't want to put his book on the shelf, I think it looks as though uh, the new my new book's going to be called... Um, actually, I can't remember what it's going to be called. Space Warp. It's had so many names. I think it's Space Warp, yeah. Uh, all right. So what was it? <clears throat> Space, Space Warp. Warp. Yeah. Like it. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's actually the name of one of the chapters as well. Uh, great to know that people... Uh, you know, find our stuff useful, particularly with the year five and six students, because they're the people who are the future. They're the ones who are going to put interstellar uh, um, spacecraft in space and things of that sort. So uh, great to have teachers listening. Um, Okay, so how does... Paul is right. Uh, There have been tests done 
Uh, it's actually not the ANU. It's a company which is uh, right next to the Mount Stromlo Observatory. They've got strong links with Mount Stromlo Observatory, which is the ANU, uh, but they're a kind of spin-off. They are called Electro Optical Systems, or EOS, and their speciality is dealing with um, trying to ease the problem or relieve the problem of space junk. Um, that There is... Um, I think I'm right in saying, because I was involved with the beginning of this, there is a uh, what's called a CRC, a Cooperative Research Centre, uh, which is called, it's the um, Space Something Research Centre, I can't remember what it is, Space Debris or something like that, uh, which EOS is part of. There you are, there's half a dozen acronyms in there. Uh, so you can see it's a complicated process. But yes, they have indeed uh, done this business of using lasers to push small pieces of debris out of the way in space. Um, and mm. they do some very, very clever stuff. But um, the, the basic principle, which is what Paul's asking about, is it's not the magnetism so much. Yes, you're right. <clears throat> Excuse me, light is an electromagnetic wave. It's a vibration of the electrical and magnetic fields in space. Um, so magnetism is involved. But it's um, in some ways a more... <clears throat> um, Excuse me, a magnetic frog in my throat there. <clears throat> it's a more um, a physical process, if I can put, than, than that, although magnetism's pretty physical. Uh, it's to do with the momentum of photons. And f f um, f light particles, which are photons, have a momentum, even though they are, they are massless. Uh, when they're stationary. We're getting to some intriguing physics here, but um, if Paul's teaching physics at all, you know that the momentum of something is the mass times its velocity, um, and that really relates to the amount of energy that this moving object contains. So <clears throat> I have fairly zero momentum at the moment because I'm sitting still, but if I was running along, my mass and my velocity will be the product. Um, but uh, light's intriguing. Light particles have momentum, but they don't have any mass because they don't have what's called a rest mass, which is the thing when it's stationary. Um, mass changes with velocity because of Einstein's special relativity theory. Uh, and at the speed of light, particles effectively do have mass uh, because they have momentum. And it's the momentum that's being transferred from the photons to the particles uh, that allow the beams to be, uh, sorry, the, 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 the bits of space junk to be moved. There's another very well-known, uh, uh, another well-known um, example of this, Paul, and that is the idea of uh, light sails in space. And these have now been tested. There's at least one experiment been done to show that you can use a light sail uh, to collect the momentum of the sun's light and change the orbit of a spacecraft. It was uh, an experiment that was conducted last year. Uh, so light sails do the same thing. They take photons of light, which are coming from the sun, and they're pretty energetic. Uh, and their some of their momentum is transferred to the solid surface. The light sail gives it a, an acceleration if you've got enough of them. And that's the same principle as, as actually using a laser to uh, as a tractor beam to move things around in orbit. Um, that's a fairly long-winded and complex explanation, but that's kind of what's happening. So... Um, it's, it's worth worth checking up on. Just um, check up on the, the the momentum of light and and how how it moves solid objects. <clears throat> yeah, I. I mean, <laughs> I, I understand the concept. Oh, like, you're uh, yes, you're still there. <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. Um, I, I, lo I, I lost you for a minute, like Andrew. Being... I thought you'd gone to sleep. <laughs> no, never do that. To me, <laughs> Um, I think I think we've got a we poor connection. I, think, well, I understand I the concept the of, of I understand the concept of sails catching a breeze, but is it exactly the same concept in space with light sails catching light or photons or the momentum? Yeah, I think it, I think it is because it's the you know the atoms of of uh, air when you're talking about a, a light a sail uh, catching a breeze that's 
the, the atoms of air are transferring their momentum to the sail and giving it a push, uh, an acceleration. So I think it's it's mm. basically the same principle. Uh, and I guess the, the, the real bottom line in this is, um, as with a sail in a sailing boat, how do you control it? Uh, you need to get all the angles right and things of that sort. And that was the, the neat part about that experiment that was done with the light sail last year. I think it was a spacecraft called Light Sail 2, which was funded by the Planetary Society, if I remember rightly. Uh, and the, what they showed was that you can you can actually use your light sail to give you um, an acceleration that is controllable. In other words, you tilt the light sail at the right angle. Uh, because what they did was they yeah. changed the orbit of the spacecraft very, very slightly, but enough to show that it was it was working. <clears throat> Feasible. Mm. No, it's fascinating. What would light sails need to be made of? They're usually made of mylar. Wouldn't be canvas. Uh, mylar sheet. Yeah. Uh, well, mylar is a it's a thin, really thin polymer. Um, uh, it's what you it basically what you use in um, you know it's the the silver paper that you use in the oven and things like that. It's that kind of thing. A very thin oh, okay. film. Um, in fact, no, it's not the silver paper. It's the stuff you use to wrap up your so, uh, you know something like Glad Wrap, which we have here in Australia, which is a food wrapping oh, thing. I think oh. that's mylar. I think that's a mylar sheet, and you, and what you do is okay. you luminise it. You you coat it with uh, with aluminium to make it reflective. All right, so I could make a light sail in the kitchen. Just get some cling film and put a piece of aluminium foil behind it. And voila, I've got a light sail. You have. Um, you have a light sail. Your problem yeah. would be that you'd have to um, pump all the air out of the kitchen to make it work, and that might not be quite so good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I knew there was going to be a trap. There's always something. Yes, all right. Uh, there you go, uh, Paul. Hopefully that's uh, answered your questions uh, this week, and thank you for sending them in to us. And if you would like to send us some questions, you can do that by clicking on the AMA tab on our website. You can send us uh, your message through our email system, so you can text it to us, or you can record it if you've got a, a device with a microphone. We love to hear your voices, but either way, uh, we will get them and we will be able to add them to the mix. So uh, thank you again to Tim and Paul. And thank you, Fred. That brings us to the end of yet another episode. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing how they all happen. Yeah. Uh, it's a yeah. great pleasure, Andrew. Uh, thank you very much for putting up with me too and um, look forward to episode 250. Sorry, 260. No, 255. Uh, <laughs> yes. 55's next. 255. 55's next. Mm. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Go and have a nap. Uh, yes, thank you, Fred, as always. <laughs> <laughs> Catch you again next week. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast. And hello to Hugh back in the studio who has now got some heavy editing to do <laughs> with heavy metal um, for sure. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. See you again on the next episode. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.